Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine where we provide a platform for healthcare professionals working in or aspiring to join rescue, expedition and disaster response teams. A platform to share information, advice and opportunities and connect like-minded Red Med individuals in our community. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 34 of the Red Med podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine. It's been a while but we're back. Welcome back everyone. As the world opens up again for international travel, there are definitely opportunities opening up from our, for our community to get back out there to support rescue, expedition, disaster response teams, TV and film productions, wilderness trips, expeditions and humanitarian missions. And that's really going to be the focus of today's monologue is to focus on some of the humanitarian operations, opportunities, risks surrounding Ukraine. And uh, many of you will know friends and colleagues who've gone out there to support, whether it be on a paid contract or as volunteers, and we're going to discuss some of those opportunities, the preparation and the risks throughout this short podcast. As we've discussed in the past and Llewellyn highlighted in the Journal of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, there's a symbiotic relationship between tactical medicine, wilderness medicine and operational military medicine. There's a crossover between the clinical and the non-clinical competencies. And it's uh, certainly, if you're well-versed in operating in one of those environments, it's likely you could cross over and add significant value to another environment, albeit with additional training. As we mentioned, there's a number of our friends and colleagues currently working across Eastern Europe and specifically in Ukraine, supporting refugees fleeing the country, displaced persons around Ukraine, and then emergency medical services, TV correspondents, and security teams across the country. Whilst they're in the same geographical location, medics are operating in different spheres from EMS, whether it be ambulance services or in hospitals, 
to tactical medical teams and humanitarian aid operations. There are similarities, there are differences, and we're going to touch on some of those today. Ultimately, preparation for each of those missions really depends. That's the word of the day, it's the word of RedMed, it's the word of operating in limited resource environments, depends. So preparation in this case depends on the mission, the organisation, your patient population and the area of operations. Although they've got different roles and certainly different exposure to risk, there are common themes. There's a need to conduct research prior to heading out there, identify the medical threats and obtain significant medical intelligence. What's the epidemiology like? What's the mechanism of injury or the nature of illness? Are there any endemic diseases or any diseases provoked by poor sanitation, overcrowding or lack of access to medical services? What is the current state of the medical infrastructure? We understand it's different in the west of the country versus the north, south and east of the country. What's the supply chain like for your particular organisation? Can you gain access to supplies? Do you need to buy them locally? Do you need to take them with you? Let's look at some of the threats, some of the considerations prior to heading out there or some of the things you may think about whilst you're on the ground there. Communications. Communications is the root of anything we do as remote medics. Without communications, we can't initiate the medical emergency response plan. We can't request support. We can't pre-alert receiving facilities. We can't uh, request a resupply. Lots of things we can't do without a robust communications network and plan. So we need communications to coordinate logistics and medivac. We need communications to share medical intelligence and provide updates. We need communications for telemedicine. Generally, in the rescue expedition, disaster medicine, wilderness, tactical sphere, we're generalists. But we may need to reach back to specialists. If there's a disaster, an earthquake, or a building has collapsed due to indirect fire explosions, then maybe we've got crush injuries. Maybe we need to reach back to a nephrologist. Maybe in some of the camps there's an outbreak of disease or, or dermatological problems. We need to reach back to a specialist. Ultimately, we've seen in Ukraine there's been a failure of the telecommunications network. Now, we know Elon Musk has stepped up and provided Starlink um, or access to Starlink to maintain that communications network. Um, operators might also consider having their own personal satellite communications device, whether it be a satellite phone or satellite messenger, such as Iridium Go or InReach. Um, these will allow you, depending on the platform, two-way communications with either preset uh, or open messaging. So you can use them to let people know your grid coordinates, let people know you've arrived safely at your destination, you can, in open text, use it for telemedicine, albeit it's, uh, depending on the platform, that can be quite laborious, but you can send short messages requesting information and it could be used for asynchronous telemedicine. We could also use satellite phones for synchronous telemedicine, but ultimately these satellite messenger platforms, whether they're used for email, messages, two-way messages, SOS function, tracking, navigation, 
if it's your first time using these devices, please check with the provider or the manufacturer because many of them, to have that SOS function, the tracking, the two-way messaging capability enabled, you need to sign up for a monthly or an annual subscription and registration. Without paying that registration, then you may just get a grid reference, uh, but you can't access all of the facilities or capabilities. Self-sufficiency. If you're deploying with a well-established large international organization, an NGO, a humanitarian aid organization, the likelihood is that they will take care of everything from paperwork, permissions, to travel, security, food, water, accommodation, etc. But we know from experience there are a lot of people traveling from around the world, turning up in Poland, trying to cross the border and getting into Ukraine as individuals, trying to find where they can lend a hand, how they can access organizations, whether it be ambulance services, whether it be refugee camps, whether it be um, frontline support. People are turning up on their own dime with the best intentions in the world. Um, and we've seen this following the Haiti disaster in 2010. There were high rates of medical tourism, whilst people had the best intentions in the world to go and help people, they weren't self-sufficient and they became a drain on the resources of the affected population, tapping into their resources for food, water, clothing, communications, transport, and in some cases, the, the medical reserves. So the key is, as we've always spoken about on this podcast, be self-sufficient, at least for the first 10 days while you can hit the ground, make contacts and, and get yourself to the right place. But please don't turn up and be a drain on the affected population's resources. So consider how you're going to access food and water. Clothing. As the season changes from winter to spring, uh, have you got the right clothing to operate, to survive, thrive and operate in that environment? Have you got the right equipment? Depends on the role. Depends if you're going to be supporting frontline services, doing inter-facility transport, emergency support, working in refugee camps, etc., Will equipment be supplied? How are you going to get there? What's the transport system like? Have you got the right permissions to get into the country with the vehicle, to move around? How do you get fuel? Security risks. This is a huge one at the moment. We're not talking about a humanitarian operation um, in Africa or in Afghanistan. We're talking about a humanitarian operation during full-scale war. There are huge risks to all of our community and the Humanitarian Outcomes Aid Workers Security Database highlighted that between 2008 and 2018, 131 humanitarian workers were killed around the world. These statistics include terrorist attacks from Asia and Afghanistan all the way through to Africa. And it should be remembered that in addition to those 131 killed, that many more were injured or kidnapped the statistics include attacks on national and international NGOs, the Red Cross and United Nations staff. So whether these people were sadly in the wrong place at the wrong time, caught in indiscriminate attacks or were directly targeted, it's clear that humanitarian actors are sadly not exempt from violent attacks and Ukraine is no different. So whilst each theatre of operations is unique, 
there are some generic threats and considerations that might pose a risk to humanitarians. And these are just a few things to give us food for thought. Road traffic accidents. Given the quality of the roads, potholes, strikes from indirect fire, mortars and rockets leaving craters or cracks in the road surface, panic, increased volume of traffic, there is always an increased risk of a road traffic accident or motor vehicle collision. And therefore, consider wearing your seatbelt, make sure your vehicle's in good operating order, the brakes work, the tyres are correctly inflated, it's in good mechanical state, and just watch your speed. Keep the speed down, because that's the biggest contributor to accidents. Landmines. Landmines are often deployed around international borders, defensive lines, or are often laid prior to a hasty retreat to protect the retreating forces flank or rear flank. So landmines we know have been laid by the Russian forces and uh, please do your homework. Please look into and, and tap into local in-country resources and find out what mines are being used. What do they look like? How are they buried? How are they marked? They're different throughout the world, whether it be plastic contained in, in a plastic container, metal container, wooden box. Some of them are literally the, the size of your hand. Others are, are much bigger. So you need to understand and be able to recognize what these threats look like as they're either formally laid in minefields or indiscriminately laid in panic. Um, and they could be on balconies. They could be on the roads. They could be on footpaths in fields. We know that 10 years after the war in Bosnia, the amount of mines laid around that country was just incredible. You could hear explosions echoing around the Sarajevo Valley as people were going out to put out their washing or to mow the lawn. You know, the mines were placed in the most unusual places and often not found for years. Then we've got ERW, formerly known as UXO, Explosive Remnants of War. We've seen large bombs, missiles, cluster bombs, have landed around urban areas, highly populated areas, and they haven't exploded. Driving over them, walking over them, touching them, tampering them could set them off. And as much as possible, we need to recognise them, identify them, cordon them, keep people away, especially kids, stop kids from playing with them. Booby traps may have been laid. There are abandoned tanks, abandoned trenches and bunkers and equipment, and it's very easy to booby trap these and when we come along as military tourists or medical tourists going into these areas to take photographs um, to stimulate our interest if the area is booby trapped that could very lead to the death or injury of colleagues surveillance surveillance we know is up is going on around the country as uh, russian sympathizers are in and around our communities providing information back to the forces that includes electronic surveillance, monitoring of emails and social media. And we know that's caused problems, whether it be posting photographs on Instagram or Facebook, linking the location. It's very, very easy for a non-professional, let alone professional intelligence agencies, to identify foreign medics, the location they're operating in, and then directly target that location. So please consider before you post. Don't identify people, don't identify locations because we're just making intelligence work much easier.
indirect fire has been discriminate, indiscriminate, directly targeted fire of rockets, mortars, bombs, which has destroyed infrastructure. Um, and it's ongoing. It's ongoing just by virtue of being in a civilian area does not necessarily provide protection just because you're nowhere near the front line or nowhere near military forces doesn't mean that area won't be targeted. We know that the Geneva Convention requires that civilians are respected and protected during conflict. Um, it would appear that hasn't been the case and indiscriminate fire has injured humanitarians, journalists and medics in the last six weeks. There have been ambushes. There have been linear roadside ambushes, certainly attacking journalists, whether it was intended or wrong place, wrong time. Um, it could happen. Kidnaps are common throughout the world. Intimidation, whether it be from Russian sympathisers, local sympathisers, or, or it could even be um, overzealous border officials who are nervous, who are, if you're operating in a corrupt country, I'm not necessarily talking about Ukraine here, operating in a corrupt country, border officials may be looking to earn a quick dime and intimidation and uh, oppression are rife. Mental health problems. There will no doubt be acute mental health problems based on what's going on in the country. There will also be chronic mental health problems, whether it be in the patient population or our own community of medics who are witness to the atrocities and the incredible horrific injuries. So please consider this. If, if you're not already out there, consider these risks and how you can potentially mitigate them through prior preparation and training, trying to reduce the risk or the impact to you. Ultimately, when we're doing a risk assessment, we're talking about the probability of something occurring and the impact if it occurs. So at each stage, we should be looking at how can we reduce the probability of these threats or these hazards impacting on us, and then how can we reduce the impact to us, whether it's through training, counselling, personal protective equipment, SOPs, standard operating procedures. Obstacles. It's challenging to move around a conflict zone from point A to point B without encountering some form of obstacle. Ultimately, obstacles, we need to analyse them, apply critical decision-making when deciding to cross the obstacle, box around or completely abandon the task. Some of the obstacles you may face when operating around Ukraine or other parts of the world in conflict zones could be frozen lakes and rivers in winter. Do we drive across it? Do we know how deep it is? Certainly there's publications out there, including the Red Med book, which highlights tables and considerations for crossing obstacles, crossing frozen rivers and lakes, and the type and depth of ice that, uh, that you need to be able to safely cross those rivers. So please don't do it blindly. Minefields, certainly don't cross them. Um, we should be looking for evidence of how minefields are marked, looking for paraphernalia, looking for parts and components of mines. And uh, ultimately, if you identify any of those, local knowledge is key. Understand how they were laid, when they were laid, what the extent and borders are. And if in doubt, without professional support and in-depth local knowledge, abandon the task and follow the safe route out that you took in. Retrace your steps. 
crossing rivers, whether it be on foot or in vehicles, comes with its own challenges and hazards. So understand the different techniques and tactics for crossing rivers, whether it be on foot or in vehicle, uh, and don't do it if you're not trained. Ultimately, it would be very easy to get trapped in a fast-flowing river in winter uh, and have that vehicle roll over and submerge. Think about when you're crossing open ground where snipers operate. Snipers have been employed by Russian forces in the Ukraine and have targeted uh, people who are not covered or not uh, concealed, if you like. Consider areas that are under surveillance. There will be no doubt in some areas, forward operating groups, reconnaissance teams, special forces, trying to identify targets whether they be military or infrastructure, and uh, they may later be subject to indirect fire, rockets and mortars. Think about illegal checkpoints. In some areas of the world, that might be um, rebels, it might be um, military, it could be police, it could be terrorists, it could be people posing as police or military, utilising their uniforms. And... Their objectives are various. It could be to kidnap, it could be to fine, it could be to um, steal your equipment. Ultimately, just be mindful of safe routes and corridors and not deviating from those safe routes that are highlighted by your organisations. Report any illegal checkpoints or any suspicious activity, and that can be analysed by the specific authorities and distributed to other humanitarian organisations to provide early warning. Good early warning systems are important. Crossing borders in conflict zones. Again, we're not talking about Ukraine specifically, but crossing borders in conflict zones is always a challenge as officials are likely to be nervous and or diligent as they're protecting their country. So any items that could identify people as combatants, mercenaries or working for the intelligence community could potentially attract attention and result in significant delays at the border or even arrest. So speak to your agency, speak to your organisation and consider how you might cross the border with GPS units, cameras, satellite phones, messengers, body armour, helmets. Maybe that you don't need them. Maybe they're already available in country or they're not necessary. But ultimately having a local fixer, permits and letters of employment translated in the local language may help. It may hinder, so check with your organisation to see if they're actually required prior to getting into country and raising eyebrows. Medical tourism, we've already talked about briefly. Uh, it was a problem identified following the 2010 Haiti disaster. Um, and a lot of medics turned up with the best will in the world, wanting to help, but couldn't speak the local language, couldn't speak French, didn't understand the local, com uh, local community or the local culture. They weren't self-sufficient um, and many people were a drain on the resources of the affected population. So prior to deploying, think, can I speak the language? May not be necessary, you may have translators. Do you understand the cultural considerations, cultural competency? Are you self-sufficient, at least until you cross the border and arrive at your location's headquarters? And can you add value? Have you got the skills, knowledge, equipment to add value? rather than be a drain on the resources. Operating in areas with limited resources, 
This is prior to heading out. Understand the mission and plan accordingly. We've seen numerous organisations raising funds and trying to direct supplies into the Ukraine. If you're involved in that, consider how you'll receive and how you will monitor the quality of the donations and how they're distributed. Ideally, they should all go to a central distribution point and that central distribution point will be aware of the needs, the geographical span of, of where each type of equipment or medication is required and will distribute them in line with the priorities in the country at the time. A fragmented approach really doesn't help anybody. You get the wrong type of equipment going to the wrong place at the wrong time. So centralised communication between the NGOs is going on. And if you're operating as an individual or a small company, try and tap in or, or link up with some of the larger, well-established organisations. So different roles that we're seeing out there. There are medics from our community operating, we'll say as frontline medics, but operating um, towards the front lines. These kind of medics might require specific tactical training and uh, the IBSC, International Board of Speciality Certifications, Certified Tactical Paramedic is a useful baseline for a recruiting benchmark demonstrating medics have got an understanding of both advanced and critical care concepts, CBRN, incapacitance, medical planning, medical intelligence, and ultimately the ability to integrate and operate with tactical teams. Then we've got other colleagues who are heading out to work with EMS, emergency medical services, whether it be frontline ambulance services or in the hospitals, emergency rooms, intensive care units. Ultimately, Bear in mind, these EMS are operating in non-permissive environments. Perhaps to the west of the country, the, uh, the threats are different, but certainly on the front lines to the east and southeast of the country, they are non-permissive environments. They may be subject to, to roadblocks, to um, highly stressed environments, and they may be subject to indirect fire, mortars, rockets, etc. So you need to have a good understanding of the threats consider scene safety and then think about the mechanism of injury, pre-hospital trauma, life support training, tactical emergency casualty care training might be ideal to help you consider scene safety and then deal with major multi-system trauma. Humanitarians and medics working with humanitarian aid organisations may be operating out of impromptu camps, may need such skills as water treatment, or paediatric and geriatric patient assessment, primary care, mental health first aid. It's not all about the immediate trauma. Remember, a lot of displaced persons and refugees were perfectly healthy at the point that they initiated their evacuation. But then as things like malnutrition, uh, reduced access to health care, the ongoing stress and the mental health issues compound their situation, we may see an exacerbation of primary care needs or pre-existing conditions. I'm not going to mention too many organisations on here just because of operational security, but one of them that is in the, the news regularly uh, and is happy to promote that is MSF. I'm not going to try and say it in, in French, but Doctors Without Borders, uh, Medicine Sans Frontières, are supporting supply chains preparing for mass casualty incidents, 
and conducting patient evacuations from country. They're currently operating a, a train or a, a medicalized train to evacuate patients from overloaded hospitals in high-risk areas and moving them to safer areas where the hospitals still have more capability and capacity. Ultimately, each task and geographical location is going to present with different challenges, different epidemiology and patterns of injury. Humanitarian organisations are reporting high rates of gunshot wounds, but predominantly blast injuries and the subsequent penetrating wounds, blunt trauma, amputations, internal bleeding, abdominal head chest wounds. So let's not forget there are high rates of multi-system trauma, but there's also the non-combat related acute medical emergencies, the daily emergencies that us as pre-hospital practitioners see, and then there's the existing chronic disease, often, again, exacerbated by poor access to medical care, nutrition, stress, um, and then likewise, acute and chronic mental health problems that we ourselves as providers might see and experience along with the patient population. So consider psychological first aid training for medics and humanitarians alike before deploying. There are numerous options out there. Uh, certainly the, the US, Australian, Canadian and British governments offer courses in psychological first aid. Likewise, the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians offers a couple of interesting courses to prevent and manage mental health problems in patients and staff. So there's the Psychological Trauma in EMS Patients course, or the PTEP course, and then there's the new NAMT Mental Health Resiliency Officer course. So there are key differences between medics operating with frontline units and directly supporting military units versus those working with humanitarian organisations. And this is quite important as many of us have worked in the Middle East and we've got the kit, equipment, clothing for that environment and we've got the will and the volunteerism, the energy to go out and help in the humanitarian field. It should be, it should be remembered that the humanitarian response will focus on minimising the loss of life and the degradation of human dignity. Ultimately, humanitarian organisations will be guided by the following principles. Humanity, impartiality, neutrality and independence. Whilst well-established humanitarian organisations are founded on these principles, individuals unaccustomed to working in this environment and heading to the Ukraine as an individual wishing to help should seek advice only travel if sponsored by a formal organisation. And where we're going with this is be mindful not to wear military clothing, national insignia, or any anything that could be construed as military or nationalistic, which could ultimately jeopardise the optics surrounding the neutrality and impartiality of you, your role, and the organisation that you're going to represent. That could put people in danger as well as the mission and the reputation. So ultimately, living, moving around and operating, or as I say, survive, thrive and operate in a conflict zone, takes a very special kind of person, but also requires baseline clinical and non-clinical competencies. 
Things like heat courses, hostile environmental awareness courses, hostile environment awareness training courses, sorry. The RedMed course, you need to prepare things like insurance. Does your insurance include medical? Does it include medivac? Does it include repatriation? Consider things like global rescue insurance that provides security consultancy rescue evacuation from conflict zones or from hazardous zones how are you going to get out of country if your insurance doesn't cover it how will you seek medical care and repatriation if your insurance doesn't cover it perhaps your organization will provide the initial point of care um, but what happens after that have you got up-to-date paperwork have you got up-to-date credentials to be able to work for these organizations and provide the best possible evidence-based care. Do you need a visa? If you turn up at the border between Poland and Ukraine and find that you can't get into the country because you don't have a visa, uh, perhaps you'll end up spending numerous days in the area and becoming a drain on the resources of the affected population. Other training that might be useful could include NIMS, National Incident Management System, um, Major Incident Medical Management and Support Training, um, ICS training, incident command system, CBRN, chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear and explosives training to understand the threats and potential mechanism of injury of some of the patients you might need to deal with, as well as the protective measures, the equipment, distance, time, decontamination, all of the kind of things you might need to keep you and your team safe. Due diligence regarding the company you're going to work for, your role, transport, how do you get there? What are the expectations when you arrive? Um, are you going to be working in an ambulance or a refugee camp dealing with primary care? Or are you expected to work in a critical care or an intensive care unit? Are your skills and knowledge up to date? Language skills, challenging to learn a Slavic language at the best of times, let alone in short time. But, you know, a couple of words, a couple of phrases can certainly help to break down barriers, establish a rapport, calm your patient down um, just in time for your interpreter to arrive and glean more information so you can complete a full, diligent patient assessment. Cultural competence, um, various different religious, religions and cultures around the region, uh, and it's worth understanding these as it is in our home countries so we can provide the best possible care and communication with our patient population. Communications. How do you communicate with home and family? Is it secure? How do you communicate on a daily basis to support your operation? And then how do you communicate in an emergency? These are questions you need to ask yourself, your team, your organisation. Um, because social media, there are benefits clearly for fundraising and for letting people know you're okay, but there are risks. As we mentioned, posting images and locations makes intelligence gathering very easy and it also allows um, military units to target installations if there are foreign people there or foreign workers particularly if they're wearing the wrong uniforms and insignia and their role could be construed as being a combatant versus a humanitarian so this has just been a, a general monologue really me waffling along around the situation i'm not in ukraine at the moment 
Um, but I know people that are, and I'm just highlighting some of the feedback that we're receiving. Um, if you're considering heading out to Ukraine as a medic or a humanitarian, please do your homework and sure you're going with a recognised, well-established organisation that you're prepared mentally and physically and have the skills that are currently in demand. It is a dynamic situation. Front lines are changing. Explosive remnants of war are scattered around. Mines are being laid as troops pull out. And then ultimately heat training and an understanding of the threats and the ability to be self-sufficient is paramount. Several international aid organisations and press agencies require their teams to conduct heat training, hostile environmental awareness training prior to going out to any of these countries. It's not always available if the deployment is short notice or if we need to move people quickly. Um, so often you'll only be employed if you've conducted your own heat training or you've got past experience. But there may be people traveling out there that haven't gone through this training. The online RedMed course, Rescue Expedition Disaster Medicine course, is, is designed for this as well, to give urban medics the non-clinical competencies, tools and knowledge to enhance their personal safety. Touches on some of the topics we've talked about here, from personal security and landmine awareness to telemedicine, humanitarian operations, negotiating checkpoints, public health in disaster and humanitarian operations, patient assessment, bleeding control, and prolonged field care. The course ultimately aims to improve provider safety and contributes in some part to improve patient care in remote, austere, and limited resource environments. So I'm not trying to push the course, but it is there if anybody wants this information, whether they're in country or thinking about going out to support operations. The most important thing before you get out there, before you apply your trade and you start helping others, is your own personal safety. Safety, 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 self-sufficiency, and then you can settle in, survive, thrive, and operate, and, uh, and be of some use to the affected population. Ladies and gents, thank you very much for your selfless work, wherever you are in the world. And if you're in Ukraine or heading out there to work, please stay safe. All the best, guys.